0: We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time, it's time for Taiwan time. This Week.
1: Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Nicholas Smith of the UK's Telegraph. Good evening. And on the telephone by Donovan Smith in Taijong
0: and great to be here.
1: Tonight we'll be discussing Taiwan's participation in the US Summit for Democracy, the government denying any involvement in the recent anti-government riots in the Solomon Islands and the latest coronavirus news. But we'll begin with breaking news this morning, or it was breaking about about 7.30 this morning when Nicaragua's government announced that it was severing diplomatic relations with Taiwan. The announcement of the end of formal ties was made by Nicaragua's foreign minister, Dennis Moncado, in a televised address and he said that the government of Nicaragua declares that it recognises that there is only one China in the world and the People's Republic of China is the only legitimate government representing all of China and Taiwan and is an undoubted part of the Chinese territory. And he went on to say that the government of the Republic of Nicaragua as of today has stopped having any contact or official relationship with Taiwan. Now here in Taiwan the Ministry of Foreign Affairs says it regrets Nicaragua's decision and has now also stopped basically having any relationship with Managua. That means all the, and it's also returning its embassy staff. As we speak, they're probably packing the boxes up. Now, interestingly enough, of course, Nicaragua actually severed ties with Taiwan in 1984, but restored the ties in 1990. Now, of course, Beijing has umped up on this and said basically, well, it cheers Daniel Ortega and the Nicaraguan government, because it's very happy that they're severing ties with Taiwan in favour of Beijing, describing it as a natural course of action. Now, of course, all that comes only days after Foreign Minister Joseph Wu said that members of Honduran's President-elect Xiamaro Castro's team have said that tagurli Kulpa will continue to recognise Taiwan. Now, according to the Foreign Minister, Taiwan's embassy in Honduras has been in contact with Castro's campaign staff as well as the Vice President-elect, and they've given assurances that diplomatic ties will not be affected. Of course, Castro, in the run-up to the recent election in Honduras, had stated several times that she would sever ties with Taiwan in favour of Beijing if elected. However, the foreign ministry here in Taiwan is not saying yet if it plans to send a delegation to attend Castro's inauguration ceremony. So, Donovan, Nicaragua says bye-bye again.
0: Yes, uh, that obviously was uh, quite a wake-up Something quite something to wake up to this morning, uh, but you know it's not actually all that surprising when you think about it. Uh, obviously, Daniel Ortega's recent uh, re-election was called a uh, sham, I believe is the word they used, or something similar, by the United States. And the the United States uh, passed, and if again, this is memory serves. I think it was in the Taibay Act. But recently, the U.S. Congress passed a law that that essentially incentivized. The U.S. State Department to put pressure on Central American companies as our countries to keep ties active with Taiwan and not to sever ties. So uh, El, Salvador, El Salvador got, for example, kind of r- raked over the coals after they uh, cut diplomatic ties with with Taiwan. But now that already the U.S. and Nicaragua don't have very good relations, so the U.S. doesn't really have quite the leverage that it used to have. And so from the Nicaraguan side, there's not a whole lot of incentive to keep relations with Taiwan, especially considering that Daniel Ortega seems to be taking his government into very much into Chinese Communist Party territory in terms of uh, style of government governance. So uh, overall, I don't think this is a, a, a big surprise. We probably should have seen it coming. Maybe we didn't, but we should have with hindsight. Um, So, I mean, obviously this is a blow, but the big question then is, will this spread? Will, for example, Honduras follow suit? And we'll have to see on that.
2: Yeah, I would agree there um, that it it isn't. Massively surprising, and against the backdrop of of huge Chinese investment in South and Central America, and I, I'll be interested in the coming days to see if anything emerges about Chinese investment in in Nicaragua. Um, Ortega already has plans for um, a fifty billion dollar interoceanic shipping canal, um, and you know, as Donovan says, it's it's. Um, it's come at a time where relations with the U.S. are, are very fraught uh, politically um, and that he needs to turn elsewhere for, for aid and support. Um, uh, America's just sanctioned his national security advisor. Um, Biden called his election a pantomime. Um, and and really, you know, for Taiwan, it, it it's a symbolic move um, uh, that Nicaragua has just made. But for Taiwan, it doesn't really make much difference um in reality um you know it it doesn't really um harm its growing international footprint um taiwan has a lot of very strong informal allies um and those relationships are are far more productive I i would say
1: of course nicola one could argue that daniel ortega and taiwan was always pretty much a bit of an oddball couple
2: well, yeah, I mean, he he doesn't exactly share the same democratic values that that Taiwan does. He seems to be more aligned to to Beijing's um, mode of government governance. Um, so, you know, maybe it'll come as. as um, some maybe there will be some sense of relief in Taiwanese quarters. I mean, it's very difficult to, to deal with an, author, an authoritarian and, and to be aligned to that kind of um, regime. So materially, it doesn't make that much difference if, if uh, Nicaragua cut, cuts ties. Taiwan's at the Democracy Summit just now in the US. Um, it's having lots of um, delegations come from um, strong democratic um, nations, and I think that's something that that would be better to focus on. Now goes donovan
0: yes, I, I mean, I agree with Nicola. I think that, that, that frankly the when Taiwan started uh you know sending over cash and support to Nicaragua when it was clearly moving in an authoritarian direction and after riots there, and it, it was really not a good look for Taiwan. And so, uh, to be honest with you, to a certain degree, this is kind of good riddance. Um, they, they really don't align with the image that, as Nicola noted, that Taiwan really has been doing an excellent job of, of showing the world of, uh, that Taiwan is a free country, it's a liberal democracy, it's a progressive society, and... Nicaragua was moving in precisely the opposite direction that Taiwan has been portraying itself as, and quite successfully to the world, and as Nicola noted, uh, is joining the Democracy Summit. Now, the other thing that, that, uh, that is also really key to watch here is again, this. Um, I'm going back to what Nicola said, um, is that the BRI, the Chinese BRI, the Belt and Road Initiative funding has been dropping dramatically in the last couple of years. So how much funding will actually go into Nicaragua uh, considering that they're already scaling back massively? So this will be a very interesting case because if very little comes in from China, then that will be a warning to other countries. Now China's going to know this, but but a lot of the funding for the BRI comes from uh, very, it's actually very disparate where it comes from within China. It's not all central government-controlled funding. It's it's quite often individual corporations, state-owned entities, which the government has significant influence over. But in a lot of cases, the decisions are made at, say, the, you know, the province level or the company level, and they may change their minds to meet targets, which because they have other. Pressures from the central government. So I'm very curious to see what and, uh, what actually materializes in terms of the investments. And yes, there's another, there's talk of another canal being built, which would be a very big deal, um, you know, to rival the Panama Canal, but it's been talk for years and not a lot has actually happened.
1: And we were talking about the U.S. Summit for Democracy there, which of course is ongoing as we're recording this show. Now, Minister without Portfolio Audrey Tang is representing Taiwan in delivering its national statement at the virtual event. Tang is delivering the pre-recorded national statement and also participating in a group panel discussion on the topic of countering digital authoritarianism and affirming democratic values. And Tang will also be joining U.S. Agency for International Development Administrator Samantha Power in the discussion and share Taiwan's experience in combating the coronavirus pandemic and digital governments. Taiwan's top envoy to the US, Bi Kim, will also be participating in the summit, while the Taiwan Foundation for Democracy and the Taiwan Association for Human Rights are also participating in separate working group discussions. Taiwan is among 110 delegations that have been invited to the summit, which is expected to focus on three principal themes of defending against authoritarianism, fighting corruption and promoting respect of human rights. Needless to say, Beijing was rather irked by Washington's invitation for taiwan to attend the summit but beijing protested that and also hosted its own parallel democracy summit this past weekend and of course nicola taiwan was not invited to participate in that one
2: yes that's true yeah um (laughs) i I mean taiwan probably has a lot to um Taiwan's a good choice for for this summit. I mean it has a lot to talk about um with democracy. I think Audrey, Audrey Tangs an excellent choice um just in the way that she has really um driven an agenda of of open governance and uh transparency. Um so I I think Taiwan uh being invited to the US summit on democracy and also um uh figures like Nathan Law from Hong Kong are one of the like that's one of the huge plus points of this Democracy Summit, which, you know, um, is actually quite a bizarre, um, is quite a bizarre event really in many ways. I mean, if you look at, at the guest list, you, you do have Taiwan and Hong Kong um, democracy activists, but you also have uh, the Philippines who've been invited. And there's been a lot of questions about that guest list and, and just, you know, whether, um, you know, what what is the purpose of the summit itself, um, on the one hand, Singapore has not been invited. On the other, uh, Duterte, Duterte's Philippines uh, has been invited, and he he faces a possible international criminal court case over the the drugs war um, killings, and and he's really cracked down in press freedom. So there's a big question over what what does this summit want to achieve really, and whether um, you know, the U S should be looking. Um, at its own issues on domestic democracy and the struggle, the democratic struggle that it's having itself. Um, so I think there's there's room for praise and room for, for criticism in this summit.
1: And Donovan, do you think basically the Biden administration organised this with countries that to give the finger to Beijing, to sort of cause a phrase there?
0: Well, yeah, I think partially to Beijing and of course, Russia, Iran, North Korea, um, so i mean it, it, the what, what i think is going to be really interesting is to see whether or not this evolves into something because i think the actual meetings themselves uh, may have limited impact i mean there's only so much that you know you can discuss and, and get done but symbolically i think it's huge i mean the idea of democracies once again banding together to uh to stand against authoritarianism you know, this had definitely has Cold War echoes. Um, and so the question is, will it symbolically jumpstart a sense of allegiance between disparate countries who have a, a common interest in standing up to authoritarianism, or will nothing actually come out of it, meaning that, you know, this giant meeting takes place, and they show up and go, oh, great, yeah, okay, this is fun. And then they go back to appeasing whatever g- giant, threatening neighbor they may have, be it China or Russia. Um, so, the, you know, the question is, will this lead to deepening ties, really, at the end of the day? That's the big question. Now, when it comes to Taiwan, it, it is disappointing that they brought in the second-best person to represent Taiwan. I think Audrey Tong is an excellent choice. Um, But obviously, President Tsai would be the top choice. That's the one that really should be representing Taiwan. And the U.S. wasn't quite prepared to go that far. So that was a little bit of a disappointment. But I am hoping that Audrey Tang will greet everyone with her customary, live long and prosper uh, hand gesture. So that will definitely help international relations.
1: And of course, Nicolette, they could have also invited Foreign Minister Joseph Wu.
2: Yeah, yeah, they could have, um, but I mean, the fact that Taiwan is at the table is already significant, I think, and and I do think that the summit does really tap into one of the the biggest questions that that we're, the world is facing now about the the challenge between. Um, the, or the confrontation between democratic values and authoritarianism and we're just seeing the rise of authoritarianism and populist rule everywhere um, I mean even within America itself it has to look inside Biden has said this is the defining challenge of our time and I do think that's correct and and um, that even if nothing um concrete comes out of the the summit. At least um the debate is there that, you know, as Donovan said, it's it's symbolic. It is recognized that this is a huge challenge that, that the world is facing and that we need to start that well the conversation has already started, but we really need to deepen that conversation about how to um take on authoritarian authoritarianism, um, especially with with the rise of um, China, uh, Russia, um, and, and also from extremist forces within our own nations? You know, how do we address that?
1: And staying with foreign relations, the government on Monday of this week denied any involvement in the unrest in the Solomon Islands. The statement came after Solomon's Prime Minister, Manasseh Sogavara, accused Taiwan of being involved in anti government riots that have rocked the Pacific Island nation in recent weeks. Now, Foreign Ministry spokeswoman Joanne O oh condemned Sogavara's accusation, describing it as being irresponsible, and saying the Solomon's leader, eh, well, he basically he's wrongly blaming Taiwan for his own failings, because she said, the people of the Solomon Islands. Are basically, well, they're angered over Sogavara's poor governance. Now, he went on to survive a no confidence motion in Parliament on Monday after accusing the leader of the Solomon Province, a Malata of being a Taiwan agent and claiming that anti government protesters were basically attempting a coup and also hinted that, well, possibly Taiwan money was behind it. However, the country's main opposition leader, Matthew Whale, charged Sogavara with being in the service of a foreign power and, of course, went on to accuse him of using money from Beijing. Jing to prop up his government. So, Nicola, Taiwan being accused of fomenting unrest in the Solomon Islands. Bit of a push, that statement, I think, to be honest with you.
2: Yeah, well, it's just ridiculous, really, isn't it? But, um, I mean, the, the the China-Taiwan debate has come into to... It is an angle of the recent unrest. It's not the... Um, it's not the trigger for it. The um, foreign ministry uh, is right, that, uh Taiwanese foreign ministry is right, that there have been underlying problems for many years now. Even Daniel um, uh, Swidani, who's the premier of Malaita province, um and He has said that uh, these problems go back to the Townsville Peace Agreement, which was signed twenty one years ago and it was to try and and bring about um, try and quell ethnic unrest between the the two major islands in the Solomon Islands. Um, and also give more autonomy to um to islands like malaita which is the most populous um island in the the solomons archipelago and you know he has he has said that it's it's uh about unemployment about alleged corruption within the government and about the 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 central government not meeting um, this agreement that w- that was signed twenty one years ago, um, so the taiwan um, china uh, debate comes into that, but it's it 's not the whole picture um, it's certainly fueled unrest um, you know Sudani has said that that um, people were not consulted about the switch to china, um, and he said in 2020 that this could push. Um, towards seeking independence. Um, and he's said again just in the past few weeks that the current unrest uh, and the refusal of um, Sogavari to stand down could also um, push people towards seeking independence. You know, he's, he says he's receiving demands all the time from from people in Malaita to, to do something about that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it's... It, it's ludicrous to suggest that, that Taiwan has, has caused the current um, problems in the Solomons when they've, been, uh, when they've existed for years.
1: And, of course, Donovan Sudani came to Taiwan in late May of this year for treatment for a suspected brain tumour, which raised some eyebrows as why he was coming here and not going to Australia.
0: Yeah, I mean, he, uh, that was, I think, an interesting point, but I think he was trying to make a political statement there with that. Um, if he'd gone to Australia, that would have sent a, a different message than going to Taiwan. Now, uh, to, uh, basically to add, to because Nicola's description was excellent, and I've been kind of following this story closely for a while because I find it kind of fascinating. I, I think the, the one bit that I can add here, uh, Nicola pretty much covered it, uh, all, all the key points there, but why is Taiwan symbolically important in all of this? And that's really what it is. Is. Taiwan has become kind of a, a symbol or a proxy for larger issues. And that is that is the values of Taiwan and the values of independence from an oppressive neighbor is one of these aspects, it looks like. Um, the fact that it touches on corruption, because there's, there was allegations of up to a million, somewhere between a quarter of a million to a million dollars being spent on individual uh, parliamentarians and uh, key people to push the government to switch to China. So it also touches on corruption. So you've got the values, you've got the corruption, you've got the, the oppressive neighbor. The, there's also, you'll notice that a big factor in the riots was rioting against and attacking people in, uh, the, in the Chinatown area, um, on Guadalcanal, which is, of course, you know, obviously there's some racially charged things going on there, but there's, there's a general impression of Chinese being rapacious there, and there's no excuse, of course, for the violence that they unleashed against the, you know, the Chinese uh, in Chinatown there, but there, I think, it ties into also a perception that Taiwanese are nicer, friendlier, better people than the Chinese. So there's a lot of things that have kind of elevated Taiwan into, into a kind of a symbol uh, repre- that represents some, uh, in a nutshell, a lot of exactly what the, what their grievances are. It's not so much Taiwan itself, it's the symbol of the switch, how it happened, and the circumstances that are going on in the country that made Taiwan something of a, of a stand-in, uh, catch-all, you know, this is this is our grievance. It sort of represents a lot of things, rather than it being the source of them itself.
1: And we have to take a short break now, but we will return after these rather important commercials. <music> Welcome back to Taiwan this week and in the local coronavirus news the Central Epidemic Command Center on Thursday reported Taiwan's first locally transmitted coronavirus infection since November the 4th. Now what was worrying about this infection was the fact that the patient well, she was working at a laboratory at Academia Sinica's genomics research centre, and according to Health Minister Chen shih jong it's highly likely the woman was infected with the Delta variant of the virus at her workplace after coming into contact with the virus in mid-November. Now, apparently, as we're talking, the well, 85 contacts of the woman have now been tested and are now at quarantine in government facilities, while Academia Sinica parts of it are now being sterilised one could say and the lab where it took place is now being closed down and the safety mechanisms are being reviewed now the report of the case comes only a day after Academia Sinica's genomics research centre actually announced that it was developing a vaccine which has initially proven in animal trials to provide protection against various coronavirus variants and even may be effective against the new Omicron variant so disturbing news there Donovan
0: yeah,. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, what I find very interesting is, obviously, this appears to be a lab leak, and of course, Taiwan's response was to come out and immediately say that this appears to be the case, uh, in contrast to what, you know, to the Chinese government's being very testy and uh, closed off about exactly what the origins of the virus in wuhan were um now whether it was a lab leak or natural transmission we don't know and probably never will because of course the the chinese government has been extremely reticent to to provide any information that would actually help identify what the what the source is and then of course the whole the the lab leak which personally i think is quite a likely one because there were actual you know for example sars in beijing jumped and killed some people a few you know some years ago uh, from a lab leak and there's there's been lab leaks around the world so it, it it's definitely a legitimate theory although uh, although Facebook was banning it as a conspiracy theory at one point um, but we don't actually know but what's interesting here is because Taiwan has just come out right you know right out and said this is what we know and t- Taiwan's transparency I think is going is very good now as for I hope the woman's doing well. This is the, the, obviously the most important thing, is that she's doing well. Um, and uh, hopefully no, nobody in her circle has become infected. And, of course, hopefully Academia Cynical will, will put in better safety precautions going forward. I mean, that's obviously a key here. But I, I think really kind of fundamentally this shows that Taiwan's approach in proactively dealing with it proactively coming out with the information and even though there it looks like there was a mistake made uh, owning up to it quickly acting quickly and efficiently to to deal with it really shows taiwan in a good light
2: yeah, I, I think I, I saw something on on someone commented on on Twitter last night that um, the woman in question appears from what information has come out so far that she uh, had symptoms for about a week or so um, before it was reported, and and someone mentioned on Twitter, you know, maybe that could be because there's such a kind of stigma now about about COVID, um, you know, every case in Taiwan makes the news, um, you know, and that's partly because Taiwan has so successfully handled the pandemic. But I do wonder um, if that's just something that that kind of mindset needs to to change that yes we're all kind of waiting a little bit with bated breath about will her contacts test positive um, you know what will this mean will it mean more stringent measures you know and, and, and hopefully it won't hopefully everyone will be okay but I, I do also think that um, uh, we do start to need to get, we need to start to um, get used to the fact that cases are going to happen. Um, and now we are um, close to 80% um, single vaccinated. More than 14 million people are double vaccinated. And we can't stay in this little bubble forever. And so leaks are going to happen. Um, you know, cases are going to probably come through the border at some point as as measures are relaxed. Um, You know, and and it's great that uh, the Taiwanese authorities have, as Donovan said, been transparent about this. And I I think it's just uh, it kind of shows how important communications are going to be. And I do think they're going to have to play a big role in preparing the public to future cases.
1: And of course, Nicola, also this week, the Central Epidemic Command Centre announced that essential workers in certain government-regulated industries will need proof of a second coronavirus vaccine dose administered before December the 17th from January the 1st. Now, the new regulation initially, of course, covered employees of those working in institutions under the jurisdiction of the Ministry of Education, the Ministry of Economic Affairs, the Ministry of Health and Welfare and the Ministry of Labour, but has since been Expanded and now applies to those in categories one, two, three, and seven of the government's coronavirus vaccination priority list. So, could we possibly see this coming months ago that the government agencies were going to go? We want to make sure everyone is double jabbed.
2: Yeah, and I I mean, I don't think it's it's an unreasonable request if if Taiwan wants to reopen. Um, and start to, um, you know, like Singapore, treat the the virus as an endemic disease eventually. And we're not there yet. But we can't just, you know, close our eyes to the fact that we will have to take certain steps to do that. Um, And the government isn't... This isn't um, saying that people absolutely have to have the vaccine. I mean, there are alternatives that if you can't take it for medical reasons, then you can... Um, offered weekly tests um, to show that that you're negative, um, but they they are focusing on people who are working in areas where there could be super spreader events, where there could be vulnerable people. Um, I know you know kindergarten um, kindergartens and schools are, are included uh, in these categories, and and you know at the moment. Um, not not every child can have a vaccination children are becoming increasingly vulnerable um especially to the the new variants and i do think that people, when people are working um in these kind of areas that they do have an added responsibility and it's not a huge ask to um to you know say to them well can you please take this measure that will protect other people particularly as we open up
0: yeah i, I... <laughs> It, issues like this I, I find a little bit complicated um in in that it, it, obviously having more people vaccinated is a good thing for society at large I, and of course people that could potentially spread risk to others is these are key people to make sure they're vaccinated on the other hand i'm i'm not wild about forcing people to do things um the so it's a little bit complicated for me i i find um but uh, all in all, in cases where people are on front lines where they could, uh, in you know, where they could spread infection to people, then it's probably a good thing. Um, although Taiwan really doesn't have any cases domestically except for the one from a- Academia Sinica. So, and the, I, I and we both know someone who was hospitalized for uh, you know from the vaccine. So there, there's there's shades of grey in here, I think, on this, but, you know, in some cases it does make sense. I'm not sure in all cases.
1: Of course, do you think it could, it could be expanded, Donovan, eventually?
0: Yeah, and that, that's, that gets more problematic. I mean, when you're dealing with people like health care workers, uh, in nursing homes, where people's lives are at risk... Uh, it makes a lot more sense to me. Uh, If you're spreading it to somebody who doesn't come in contact with a lot of people and then mandating it to them, that seems a little excessive.
1: And Nicola, do you think it could be expanded?
2: Possibly, but I mean, you know, where does the government go with this? At the moment, there's one case And it becomes a huge political issue. So you can't have it both ways. Either people take measures to combat the virus or they just let it in and let it rip. So, I mean, I do think that people have to just be realistic. And there isn't an absolute mandate um, to have the vaccine. Um, There are alternative options, as I've said. You know, you have the option to, uh, for medical reasons, you can be tested um so there are exemptions um it's not a dict- it's not a diktat from the top um with no other no other alternative and and realistically where do we go from here are we going to you know just sit in this little bubble for years to come where there's the borders are closed and, and we try to keep COVID zero, or do we try to take sensible measures um, to live with the virus? And the vaccine's got to be a huge part of that, as well as, you know, wearing masks in certain circumstances and taking you know, socially distance measures when, when necessary, and Singapore is really a model to to follow with that. But I think you know, there comes a point where you have to just decide whether your own personal liberties are um, are really worth um, you know more important than than bringing society back to normal.
1: What about the, of course, there's talk of coronavirus passports in some countries, Nicola. And of course, in Taiwan, we have a yellow card. Do you see the government eventually turning and saying you have to bring your yellow card if you want to go into this venue, this venue, this place?
2: I mean, I, I, the yellow cards, I, I think they will have to revise it because um, I think globally it's going to become more important to have um, your vaccination digitalized. Um Most countries are already doing this. Um, these kind of cards can easily be forged. If you want to have a robust system, then the cards just aren't going to work. And Donovan,
1: a card or a digital thing on your phone to enter a venue? Good thing, Well, we
0: finally may have found a really good use for blockchain. <laughs> um, readily verifiable and very hard to uh, counterfeit. That, that actually may be a, a very good use for blockchain. Um, I'm hoping that Audrey Tong will, will, will get on that. Um, that that I think would be a a better a better way to handle it. I mean, as Nicola noted, uh, these things can be forged, um, and of course, there was famously in the news the other day someone who came in thinking they could get out of a chab by bringing in a fake arm. Um, the uh, so you know I mean, there's people who are going to try and evade the system, but I think fundamentally, when it comes down to it, it's looking like Taiwan is going to hit 75, 80 uh, percent vaccinated without any mandates or passports or requirements that you bring in a passport or a a card or anything like this. And that's a pretty high rate compared to a lot of countries. It seems like Taiwanese are, by and large, complying with this uh, voluntarily. And uh, so I'm not not really sure that these things are going to be needed domestically. But internationally, it's kind of up to the international community what they're going to demand as far as as vaccination and and so on and so forth i mean that you know what what the international community is going to need for travel will of is obviously up to them but then there's you know the the omicron variant that's just come out and then a second variant of it um which seems to be pretty mild but spreads pretty easily so we may well be heading into a flu-like situation where obviously the flu killed tons of people in the late teens and the early 20th century and then it became a mild seasonal disease and that that seems to be how most most diseases evolve because if they kill too many of their hosts they don't you know they don't spread which evolutionarily is really kind of a bad strategy whereas the flu has evolutionarily made itself a problem but doesn't kill so many of its hosts. So, you know, it, and that means it's alive and well every year spreading around the world. But, you know, we we don't have you know vaccine passports for that. So that may be where we're headed.
1: And, of course, Nicola, Taiwan is, of course, now 62% fully vaccinated and 78% one vaccine so far. And the Epidemic Command Centre has said, well, we've had a big push of vaccinating people. And, of course, some of this has to do with... Offering vaccines in train stations, supermarkets and shopping malls and also offering coupons and bags of groceries and lunch boxes to those who pop in and get a quick jab.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a great idea um, uh, because it's always I think every country that's got high vaccination rates has always kind of hit a threshold where it becomes much harder to to get people to sign up. And maybe some people just need a little bit of an extra push or they're a bit unsure how to go through the official systems or they're a bit, you know, hesitant about, about what to do. Um, and, and this really helps to kind of capture those people. But I, I think one of the, the important things about these um, vaccinations at train stations um, as well has been, I think uh, I read that it was like 60 to 70 percent of people who were taking it up were, were foreigners. Um, and of course, Uh, We have also seen um, this week that the government has been offering um, an amnesty to migrant workers who have overstayed their visa to get the vaccine because that creates a a big loophole um, if people are scared to come forward um, in case they get deported. So I do think that initiatives like having um, uh, vaccine stations um, at public transport hubs is a a very good um, strategy in this regard.
0: Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think it's a good idea. I, I agree with Nicola here. This is, um, you know, there's there's a there's certain demographics out there that are resistant to the vaccines, um, and one of them is is generally people in their you, say fifties and sixties. A lot of them voted for Hangulu in the last election, and they have these line groups that are fed frequently with memes and uh disinformation some of which comes from china now you know so they, they're exposed to a lot of, sort of anti-vax uh memes and inf- disinformation coming in and at the same time though uh, it, there's a, a good chunk of this demographic says for example like there's a uh a uh, neighborhood in the Dali district here, and they were handing out three kilo bags of, of rice. And, you know, they may go, well, you know, maybe those three kilos is worth it. So, you know, I think it will actually move the numbers somewhat. I think it will add a few percentage points. Um, yeah, I don't think it's going to convince everyone who doesn't want to be that vaccinated, but it, I think it will certainly help. It will move the needle somewhat.
1: Um of course Donna. why do you think people aren't being vaccinated here because of course there's no big anti-vax sort of organization
0: Well there is there's a lot that's coming in from uh particularly from China uh but there's also uh you know local local ones uh, I there is there is something of an anti-vax movement here um it, it's it's not silent a lot of it is of course copying overseas anti-vax uh you know, it's the arguments are very, very similar, and I've seen things passed around online about you know people turning magnetic after they get their vaccine and stuff like that. So there is an anti-vax uh, problem here that 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 does exist, um, and then there are other people who are just too busy or you know they just don't feel like they need it because you know Taiwan's safe right now. So. I, you know how big the anti-vax movement here is it seems to be relatively small compared to other countries but it definitely does exist and then you've just got the lazy or too busy or you know for some various not because they're anti-vaxxers the people who are haven't gotten it yet for whatever other reason yeah when what i don't really know and i think one interesting question is is of these 20 or so percent that haven't gotten a vaccine what percentage is which in this case? And, and I'd be very curious to know, but I, I have no way of quantifying, you know, of that 20, 22 percent or so, what, you know, what percentage are in each camp, I really couldn't say.
1: And before we go this week, it's basketball season once again here in Taiwan. But while fans of the sport for many years had one league to follow, they had two leagues last year and this year there are three leagues for fans to watch as the Super Basketball League and the Plus League are now being joined by the T1 League. And that means there are a total of 17 teams competing across the three well-competing leagues. And that's led some concern and complaints that while it will increase the sport's visibility, it could have a negative effect on the local semi-pro and pro basketball scene. That controversy is being dubbed the Hoop Wars. And to help me make sense of the situation, I'm joined now by the Taipei Times' local sports reporter, Jason Pan. Good evening, Jason. Good evening, Gavin. It's always good to talk about sports. And looking quickly at those competing leagues to begin with Now the SBL is considered to be semi-pro While the two other leagues are considered to be pro leagues So Jason, three competing leagues with different makeups and different owners And of course slightly different team organisational ways and means
3: Yes, uh, it's the same sports but three different business models you might say And now we have three leagues, 17 teams And how are they going to compete with each other? Uh, that's why sports fans Taiwan will be uh, expect to see this coming season.
1: So let's look at some of the leagues. The T1 League, it's stating itself as a local league where it has the teams are from specific cities, and named after specific cities. The Plus League, sort of has the same makeup there with teams named after cities for the most part. While the Super Basketball League, the the, the teams are basically while they might have a city name in their title. They're mostly run and backed by companies because the company names are in the team's name.
3: Yes, uh, Gavin. SBR, uh, which is uh, CTPA, the governing uh, body for the uh, Taiwan basketball, is the, uh, based on the old model of corporation sponsorship. They are not based in cities. So SBR in the past 19 season is more or less run like a tournament. Like, you know, people might know about Jones Cup. You play in one stadium menu... Then the team comes through, and SBR they go through to other city and runs another series. Plus Lee comes in and saying we're gonna have a different concept, home and away. Wow, bright ideas, and we're based on teams on while well, certain you know cities uh, many. They started uh, with the uh, Formosa Dreamers. Uh, now it's uh, the Taishin Bank has a sponsorship, so it's Formosa Taishin Dreamers and also Football Braves. That's a big, you know, Fuban Financial uh, Corporation headed up by Chris Chai. And now we also have Taoyuan Pilots and also Shinju Jayco J. Co. Pioneers. And for the coming this season, there's two addition, two new teams. The New Taipei Kings and also Kaohsiung Steelers. And of course, there's the T1 League. Right. They have another different concept. They say, well, we're not going to just base on entrepreneur uh, company corporations. We're based on the six major cities in Taiwan, the Liu Du. Ah, okay, so they have basically the uh, New Taipei City, BCdeA DEA, which stands for the uh, Drug Enforcement Administration. That's an interesting name. And also the uh, Taiwan Beer Hero Bears, based in Taipei, and Taoyuan Leopards. Also Taichung, Taichung Uyghur Sons, and also Tainan TSG Ghost Hawks, the THG is uh, the Taiwan Steelers Group, and also Kaohsiung Aquas, which is uh, the associated with the Jyotai Technology, which also has a team in SBL.
1: And of course, with all these teams and all these games now, Jason, we have a question over venues, because obviously there are certain venues, as in the ones of the big ones in Taipei and Kaohsiung, for example, are in big demand, and all the teams want to play in the, the big venues. But with so many teams and games... Some of these teams are being forced to play in university gymnasiums. I mean, do you think we could see a flurry of the need to build new big basketball stadiums? The two main venues in Greater Taipei area are the
3: Herping Gymnasium and the Xinzhuang Gymnasium. And the big one in Kaohsiung is the K Arena, you know, uh, the, the K Dome. So, but there are also other gymnasiums or sports complex indoors in Taichung hua and Shinzu. Um, it's likely if the local government and the corporation willing to uh, join pull their money and co-invest into building new stadium but that is not a foreseeable future in Taiwan most sports say the sports stadiums they are constructed by local government and Taiwan has you know the sports administration and all these are uh, you know, government overseeing the running of these uh, stadium or sports complexes or indoor dorms. I cannot see a foreseeable future. So they'll be fighting for the premium indoor arenas or gymnasiums and because the most fun attendance. Uh, that, let's not forget they're also the online
1: broadcasting and uh, media. Yeah, I was going to bring that up of course because they're not only fighting over venues they're also fighting over television coverage and of course coverage on online platforms.
3: That's right. There's a very fierce rivalry and uh, competing, uh, getting these uh, broadcasting deals. But Taiwan has been flourishing with some uh, the sports uh, uh, channels. Also, there's a famous uh, one is that uh, who left Taiwan, so the market is not so big. But there are also the uh, so-called uh, set box, or you have to subscribe to a uh, like uh, Zhonghua Telecom for one of those uh, Hami. Or the, that you can access a TV channel or through subscription. So there are online media platforms. They are doing these uh, kind of deals. But again, it's the fighting over fine interests, which could proven to be a you know a survival of fittest, along with fighting over the menus. See the big menus. They have public transportation or other easy transport. Uh, you know, uh, networks for people getting into as uh, city center. You know, new Taipei, Taipei Kaohsiung. The other team, uh, the, all the seventeen teams total, some of them are playing in university stadiums, uh, gymnasiums, indoors uh, venues, and they are more uh, further difficult to reach. Some are playing in uh, in you know Taoyuan Zhongli area. Some are playing in in the, some university. Uh, in Taichung and other places. So, fans will be uh, more difficult to reach, and uh, how little effect we'll see how this season will uh, go through with all these uh, competition for m- menus and broadcasting deals.
1: And of course, wrapping up, Jason, I mean, obviously now three leagues, different business formations, different business ideas, different operational concepts. Do you think this is three leagues, 17 teams, good for Taiwan basketball? or do you think the fact that they're being run on different business systems and ways and means could actually harm the support in Taiwan, stymie its growth, for example?
3: Yes, Gavin, that's a good point. Indeed, we have corporate money coming in, and which is good for the sports, and they're investing in sports for the development, more teams, means more uh, jobs, more players, more coaches. On the other hand, people have voiced concern that if the, all this money is only looking at bottom line profitability over the healthy development of basketball. See, are they going to be trickled down to the grassroots, amateur level, and also the professional and uh, these leagues? Will they be competing? Will they be become survival fittest with some league uh, becoming uh, in some uh, smaller market? Will they fall in a few years? That's a concern a lot of people have been speaking about. Also, some people may say that dilution of player talent and also coaching, it might become a uh, like losing proposition that initially the new teams will attract fans' interest, but will the fans stick to the teams this year until the next year season? We don't know. And also whether you depend on the online and also TV, the rating numbers. And also, of course, the gate receipt. But on the other hand, the, of course, uh, there are the financial corporations and uh, there's also investors uh, who are based in Taiwan, but they have ties in the U.S. They want to invest in, in basketball. So that's a good thing. And they are putting in sponsorships as well, commercial sponsorship, advertisement, online or TV. But whether all this money going to plow back into Taiwan basketball development for better fans and Taiwan's uh, competitiveness in basketball or whether it'll be just a marketing thing and also for the teams to be uh, become uh, making money and if they don't they vote and uh, you have some teams that could not finish you know in a coming season we don't know we
1: have to see and that was me in conversation with the Taipei Times is local sports reporter Jason Pan And that's where we'll leave it here this week on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Nicola Smith. Thanks for having me. And on the telephone by Donovan Smith in Taichung with the wee echoes of a garbage truck once again.
0: Yes. Well, you know, it's my signature song. I like to be associated with it.
1: And it suits him. Anyway, thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows.